All right, let's pray together. O Father in heaven, O Lord of heaven and earth, we as your people gather before you this day on the Lord's day. Please lift up our souls to you on high, O Lord. Please give us a glimpse of your glory today. Please speak through me, O Lord, to your people. Please bless this word. Please exhort us. Please encourage us. Please convict us. Help us to glorify you. Please help us to focus, O Lord, and lead us from distraction and from temptation today. We love you, O Lord. We lift up our souls and our praise and our prayers to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, the text that we're going to be looking at is from the book of Hosea, chapter 2, the entire second chapter. Before we get to that, before we read those sections, I wanted to uh, introduce Hosea and where it's found in the Old Testament. Hosea is categorized under the category of prophet. He's a prophet. He's in the prophets of the Old Testament. The Jews, or the ancient Hebrews, divided the Old Testament scriptures into three sections. It was the prophets, the law, and the writings. And today we are in the prophets, or what was called the Nevi'im to them in Hebrew. The name Hosea, his name actually means salvation. And the prophets were God's prosecuting attorneys towards the people of Israel. So God made a covenant with Israel, and the prophets were sent later on as his prosecuting attorneys to convict his people for what they had done, how they broken the covenant with the Lord, but they also held out promises. So they, they brought woe and doom, as it were, and conviction upon the people, and then they brought promises of hope and blessing at the same time. This writes Thomas Edward McComsky. According to the subscription... Hosea's prophetic activity began sometime during the reigns of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam II, king of Israel. Hosea was a prophet to both northern and southern kingdoms, in that he addressed both kingdoms in his prophecy. However, he directed his strongest and most urgent words to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. Little, known, little is known of Hosea, and still less of his father, Biri. So, unlike many other prophets, Hosea was speaking to both kingdoms. Most prophets either had an assignment to the northern ten tribes or the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But Hosea speaks to both kingdoms in his prophecy. In an introduction to the Old Testament, it reads, In the ministry of Hosea to the ten apostate northern tribes, there is a manifest the grace of God. It is to these tribes, ripe for destruction, that the prophet is sent... His great purpose is to reveal the love of God for a sinful and rebellious people and nation. He pictures that nation under the symbolism of a faithless wife, as a nation that has committed spiritual adultery, and he pleads with the people to repent and to turn from their ungodly ways. There must come a time of refining, when Israel shall dwell for many days in an unusual condition. Then, after the exile, mercy will again be shown." So this is the context of the book of Hosea. Hosea is speaking to both the kingdoms, the northern and the southern, but he's especially focused on the uh, northern ten tribes. If you recall in your Bible history that after Solomon, king of David, was uh, king over all of Israel, the entire nation was at one point unified, but his son Rehoboam and his false 
wisdom and misunderstanding basically allow the kingdom to split into two nations, the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. So we're here in Hosea in that state. The kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms. And then, of course, God, as many of you know, calls Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer and to have children by her. And then later on, Gomer leaves Hosea, goes back to prostitution, and God commands Hosea to go into the brothel and to buy her back. That is the context of this book here. So, I'm going to address you in three heads today from Hosea chapter 2. First, the righteous judgments of God on his spoiled and unfaithful people. Second, God's faithful love to his unfaithful and unlovable people. And three, our response to God's faithful love. So first, the righteous judgment of God on his spoiled and unfaithful people. Now I'd have you turn to Hosea. We're going to look at the first, or excuse me, Hosea 2, verses 1 through 13. We'll look at the first half of Hosea 2, and then we'll look at the second half. So Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, or you are my people, and to your sisters, Ruhama, or you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She hath conceived them. She that hath conceived them have done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my, my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy ways with horns and make a, thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will return and go to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to her cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees. Wherefore she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balim, wherein she burned incense to them. And she decked herself with the ear, her earrings and her jewels. And she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. Do we not see here in old Israel an eerie similarity between the American church or part of the new Israel of God, the compromise with the world around us, the many different things we've all consumed and become distracted with and even idolized, the spiritual adultery with what we engage in with the bales of our nation, such as the ecumenical movement 
the softening of the gospel message, the profaning of the pure worship of God by mixing it with New Age teaching, with neo-Marxism, the prosperity gospel, corporate church growth strategies, government partnerships, emotionalism, and moralistic therapeutic deism. This unfortunately is a sad state of affairs. In 2018, Ligonier Ministries, which is the ministries that R.C. Sproul founded, did a survey, uh, something like a Pew Research survey. They surveyed thousands of evangelicals across the nation of America. They called it the State of Theology Survey. And their findings they released to the public, and they do this every two years, so one should be forthcoming this year as well. But I'm going off of the statistics from 2018. There's many questions asked to evangelicals and Americans alike, but I'm only going to bring to you three and the findings of these three questions. And I think that will sum up my thesis of the state of the American church. Question number one. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 52% of evangelicals agree with that statement. That is basically the ancient heresy of Pelagianism. 52% of evangelicals agree with that statement here in America. Number two, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 51% of evangelicals surveyed agree with that statement. That's idolatry. Three, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78% of evangelicals agree with that statement, which is the ancient heresy of Arianism, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Now, I will give, as the surveyor said this, that it is a bit of a trick question. If people aren't prepared, they might just think it's a question asking how glorious Jesus is, but it's saying, is Jesus the first and greatest being? Well, we would say, no, Jesus is not a created being. He is God of God, light of light. He is the creator. He was not created. 78% still agree with that statement. Back to our text. The worst part about this text is that all the good things that Israel received was from the hand of the Lord, and they turned and misused these gifts and went after illicit lovers. They then began to seek these good these goods from them instead of the Lord, and it seems that they came to believe that these good gifts actually came from their lovers and not from Yahweh. The same is true of the church, or if you like it, the new Israel today. We have many similarities to the old Israel during the time of Hosea. Deuteronomy 8, 17-18 You might say in your heart, The power and strength of my hands have made this wealth for me, but remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to gain wealth. And this is true. We have forgotten Him as a church. We have forgotten Him as a nation. We have forgotten where all the blessings and goodness in our life come from. We have forgotten that it comes from God and not from the work of our own hands or from our neighbors or from even our nation. God has given us the grace to gain wealth and we have forgotten Him. As it says in verse 13, I will visit upon her the days of Baalim, wherein she burned incest to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. As in Jeremiah, it says, My people have committed two great evils. They have forgotten me, the fountain of living waters, and they've gone after and dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is true of the American church. We've gone after broken cisterns, and we've turned from the fountain of living waters. We've forgotten God. 
in all that we do. Matthew Henry, commenting on this section of verses, says, Impenitent sinners will soon be stripped of the advantages they misuse and which they consume upon their lusts. Have we not seen a tremendous display of this in the last several months with the results and the happenings of the coronavirus, the ramifications, the economic downturn that have happened from this, the chaos in the streets, the instability in our nation as a whole? Surely judgment begins at the house of God, but God also has judged the sins of this nation, which has been the recipient of an unusual number of blessings from God for these last few hundred years. This is a anomaly in history that a church would receive this much blessings, a church in America, not have to deal with persecution like they do all across the world for the last 2,000 years. And that this nation would be recipient of so much goodness from the Lord who blessed this nation, made it the most powerful, prosperous nation on the face of the earth that ever existed. We have received waterfalls of blessings from the Lord and we have not responded correctly. Both church and nation have squandered these blessings and have turned aside to doctrines of demons, especially the nation of America, like the demonic practices of sodomy and child sacrifice. These are strictly occult, evil practices, and we as a nation have embraced them with open arms. How are we shocked at God's judgment towards us? As it says in Isaiah, For the nation and kingdom that shall not serve thee shall perish. And that's a promise. Matthew Henry, further commenting on these verses, says, God threatens what he would do with this treacherous, adulterous people. They do not turn, therefore all this came upon them, and it is written for our admonition. We have reason to bless God for restraining grace, and for restraining providence, and even for sore pain and sickness or calamity, if it keeps us from sin. The disappointments we meet with in seeking for satisfaction from the creature should, if nothing else will do it, drive us to the Creator." When men forget or consider not their comforts come from God, he will often in mercy take away their comforts and bring them upon their folly and danger. Sin and mirth can never hold long together, but if men will not take away sin from their mirth, God will take away mirth from their sin. And if men destroy God's word and ordinances, it is just with him to destroy their vines and fig trees. This should be the ruin of their mirth. Taking away the psalm seasons and the Sabbaths will not do it. They will readily part with them and think it no loss. But he will take away their sensual pleasures. Days of sinful mirth must be visited with days of mourning. So I think in all of these things that we're experiencing, brethren, the virus and all the ramifications from it, we should hear God shouting to us through these things. He should hear his loud shouts to see why these things are happening to us. All seems very bleak at this point, and I don't mean to just bring a bleak, dark message here. I'm trying to outline the first few chapter, verses of this chapter, but all seems very bleak. But praise God that He is a Redeemer and that He delights in mercy. So let us go to the second half of Hosea 2, verses 14 through 23. Under the second head, God's faithful love to His unfaithful and unlovable people, starting in verse 14. Therefore, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. 
and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shall not call me any more Beli. For I will take away the names of Belim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of the heaven, with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow unto her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. So much more hope in this section. Matthew Henry, of course, commenting on these sections, says, After these judgments, the Lord will deal with Israel more gently. By the promise of rest in Christ, we are invited to take His yoke upon Him, upon us. And the work of conversion may be forwarded by comforts as well as convictions. But usually, the Lord drives us to despair of earthly joy and help from ourselves, that, being shut from every other door, we may knock at mercy's gate. When the people were weaned from idols and loved the Lord, no creature should do them any harm. This may be understood of the blessings and privileges of spiritual Israel, of every true believer, and their partaking of Christ's righteousness. So I don't have time to lay this out this morning, but what I'm assuming in this, these verses, as we've been taught in this church, and as we hold to as Reformed Baptists, is that the old Israel, there's continuity between us and old Israel. We are the new Israel. We are the spiritual Israel. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now all these things happen to them for an example, that they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. We can learn from old Israel because we are the spiritual new Israel of God. We are engrafted into the olive tree. So we as Gentile believers are part of this new Israel and we can take, for example, what happened to old Israel and we can listen to the words that God spoke to them and learn from their mistakes. But how can this all be? How can this bleak picture be turned to glorious triumph and love and mercy and kindness from the Lord? How does this happen? Well, let's look at each verse here individually. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. This is astounding, after all. God would condescend in such a way to rebellious, lewd people, he would actually initiate reconciliation with us. It's not as though we did anything that he said, well, I think I might take that as a, a, a favor in my sight or merit. No, he initiates reconciliation with us when there's absolutely nothing to love in us at all. That is who God is. Job adds his witness. Indeed, he drew you from the jaws of distress to a spacious and broad place, to a table full of richness. Is this not true of many of us in our conversions? We might not have even lived as long as we've lived now. We might have been dead at this point, but God gave us new life and new seasons, bonus time as it were. We're still alive. We're, we're walking in His grace. We have new things. We have new life. We have new joy. And that's all God's grace and mercy. He drew us out of the miry clay in the pit. He picked us up and He set His love upon us because He's merciful and gracious. That's it. It's not anything to do with us. And yet He did these things. John Gill 
commenting on these verses says, The word rendered allure signifies to persuade, as in Genesis 9.27. And in conversion, the Lord persuades men, not merely by moral persuasion or the outward ministry of the word, but by powerful, affectious grace, opening the heart to attend to the things spoken and the eyes of the understanding to behold wondrous things in the word of God, working upon the heart and removing the hardness and impenitence of it, quickening the soul, drawing it with cords of love and sweetly operating upon the will persuading it to true repentance for sin, to part with sins and sinful companions and with its own righteousness and to come to Christ and to look to Him and lay hold of Him as the Savior and to submit to His ordinances. Moreover, the Lord persuades men at conversion of His love to them and of their interest in Christ and all the blessings of grace in Him. That is what we're seeing here in this word, allure. God is wonderfully alluring and persuading us by effectual grace. He saves us, He opens our eyes and our hearts, and He draws us with love to Himself. That is our Savior and our Lord. Isaiah adds this witness, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted His people and will have mercy upon His afflicted. Strengthen the weak hands and comfort the feeble knees. This is our God, extremely gracious and kind and merciful, the great author of redemption. As Micah 7 says, 7.18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Verse 15, And I will give her her vineyards from thence, in the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. I'll briefly comment on this uh, verse. We don't have a lot of time for this, but John Gill says, Now as the valley of Achor was the entrance of the Israelites in the land of Canaan and gave them a hope of possessing the whole land, so what the people of God enjoy at first conversion lays a foundation for hope of eternal glory and happiness. As the Lord being given them as their portion, Christ as their Savior, and all things freely with them, the Spirit and His grace as the earnest and pledge of the eternal inheritance, grace and glory are so strictly connected that one door is the hope of the other. So we hear in the Valley of Achor, we see a typology of Israelites entering in the land of promise, crossing over the Jordan, and so we also have a hope. We have a door that leads us past the, the, uh, the river of Jordan as we enter into the new heavens and new earth. Verse 16, And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shall not call me no more Beli. John Gill says it signifies this word Beli, a lordy or imperious husband, and the word Ishi, a loving one. Serve the Lord from love and not fear, Ishi being a word expressive of marriage and love, and Beli of lordship and fear. So many of us, Sometimes I fall into this. I still think sometimes of the Lord as Bailey, as a, as a hard or imperious husband, but that's not who the Lord is. He is a merciful and faithful husband. We should call him Ishi, as the Israelites were told to call him. He loves us. He is in a good relationship to us. He has drawn us. He's initiated reconciliation to us. He has gone the extra mile to save us. So as we pray, as we come before the Lord, we should have intrinsically on our hearts this reaction to God, and we should call him Ishi. He, that should be our call to him and not in, in carnal or craven fear as Bailey. That is not who God is. God has initiated this covenant with us that we should primarily come to him as the loving one, our faithful husband, Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, from thy maker is thine husband. 
And the Lord of hosts is his name. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Jeremiah adds this, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. This is the spousal love of the triune living God towards us. The Son enters into a marriage covenant with us, the church, his bride, and all of us who are in the church, who were beforehand lewd and adulterous, God sets his love upon us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 17. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. We see examples of this in Psalm 16.4. Sorrows will multiply to those who chase after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or speak their names with my lips. Jeremiah says, Thus says he unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Have we not seen this in many of our lives that the most idolatrous amongst us after conversion have become the most zealous for the name of God? God has cleansed our mouths from the idols we used to worship and praise. God has made us zealous for his name so that we can say with David, I will not even speak their names on my lips. That is what God does. We are We are zealous for the purity of his worship when before we were as lewd and as carnal as the world can be. This is the marvelous work of sanctification, regeneration, the washing, the Holy Ghost, is that God can do this to us. And that's the promise he says in Hosea, I will take the name of Balaam out of their lips. We will not serve the other idols and the gods of this nation. We'll be zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Verse 18. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword in the battle of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. Now this is something where it gets a little difficult in the interpretation of this passage. This is what theologians uh, like to call prophetic foreshortening. What Hosea is seeing here is in this prophecy of the new covenant, he is seeing the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ and all the benefits and all the things that come from it happening all at the same time. So from a distance back in the past, Hosea is looking forward prophetically and he's seeing all that's happening in the first advent of Christ and the second advent. But from a distance, they look as if they're at the same time. And so this is what's called prophetic foreshortening, as you like an uh, illustration. If you were driving some miles back and you're heading towards the Rocky Mountains, you see the mountain range and all the mountains seem as if they're right next to each other. But as you get close to the mountains, they all of a sudden have great swaths of land between them. Well, that's what happened as we in the New Covenant can see. The first advent of Christ, there were certain things that happened. Christ came in mercy and grace to save sinners. And we see the benefits of the Holy Spirit being poured out in the salvation of sinners. And we are in that interventor, the period between the two advents. And at the second advent, he will come in judgment and bring the new heavens and the new earth. So that is still yet to come. As Hosea is saying, I will make a covenant with the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle of the earth. That's the new heavens and new earth when there's no more pain and sorrow, when there's no more fighting. We'll beat our plowshares into pruning hooks. We'll lay under our, our vineyards and no one 
will harm us. That is what's happening here, this prophetic foreshortening. We'll see this as well in Isaiah. He says, Then he will judge between nations and arbitrate many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor train any more for war. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling will be together, and a little child will lead them. It will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is full of water. That is the new heavens and the earth coming. So we still have yet to experience that final state, but it's promised here in Hosea. Kim Rillberger says this about these texts. We interpret them with the broader framework of the New Testament eschatology and the relationship these texts have to the tension between the already and the not yet, between the kingdom at present and the consummation of that kingdom in the future. So Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom, and when he comes again second time, he will consummate the kingdom. So we are in between those times right now. That is the interventional period between the two advents. Moving on. Verse 19. And I will betroth thee forever unto me. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Ezekiel adds this. Then I passed by you and saw you. And you were indeed old enough for love, so I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine declares the Lord God. Isaiah adds this witness, For the Lord has called you back like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, the wife of one's youth, when she is rejected, says your God. No longer will you be called forsaken. No longer will your land be called desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be his bride. Forgive me for a, a long quote from John Gill here, but he, he says and he quotes on these verses and he comments on them so succinctly I had to include it. And I, I trust it will be a blessing to all of you to hear this. Quote, And this may be applied to every particular soul at conversion, which is the day of their open espousals to Christ, and they are visibly brought into a marriage relation with him. That which is nothing more near, they become flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, yea, one spirit with him, and are indulged with near communion with him. And hence is that sympathy he has with them in all their afflictions, temptations, exercises, and takes that is done to him which is done to them, whether good or ill. Hence, all their debts or sins become his, and he satisfies for them, and his righteousness becomes theirs. This is a very endearing relation. There is a mutual delight and complacency that takes in each other, and the most able one it is. Hence, they are called by his name, Christians, and partake of his honor. He is king, and they queen. And a very beneficial relation it is, for all that Christ is and has are theirs. And the most marvelous and wondrous thing it is that he should betroth them to himself when he is the Son of the living God, himself the true God, God over all, blessed forever. Yet, in their open espousals at conversion, are fallen sinners in a very low estate indeed, under sentence of condemnation and death, Devoid of the image of God, depraved, polluted, and guilty creatures, in deep debt and extreme poverty, it as if a prince, heir apparent to the throne, should take a convict or condemned malefactor out of her cell, or a bankrupt beggar from the dunghill and marry her. And his relation will con- this relation will continue forever and ever. 
The marriage covenant or contract is an everlasting one. The bond of union, which is everlasting and unchangeable love, is indissoluble. Death cannot take place in either party. Both shall live forever. And this is a strong proof of the final perseverance of the saints. End quote. This is an extremely glorious truth that no matter what happens, whether life nor death nor angels nor demons or things present or things to come, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ. If you are united to Jesus Christ this day, if you are in covenant with Him, there is nothing that will separate you from Him. Death, nothing can separate you from Him. His love for you was set upon you before the worlds began. Jesus came and took the sins of you, His people upon Himself. Your, your guilt and your shame were put upon Him. He paid for it. He loved you with an everlasting love. He came and bought you. And that relationship will never, ever, ever change, ever. Because God is faithful. And He does these things because He is gracious and merciful. As Psalm 85 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. We'll see more of how this works out in the New Covenant and how Jesus brings this, this to pass. Finally, the last few verses of this section here. Verse 20 to 23. I will evil even betroth thee unto me in righteousness and faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine. And the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow unto her me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. I will say unto them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Isaiah adds this to these verses. And I shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Psalms, it says, All the ends of the earth, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Zechariah 2 says, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and, shall my and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto them. How beautiful this is that the Lord reconciles not only Jews but Gentiles unto himself from all the ends of the earth. He sends forth his Son. He draws us all to himself because he loves us. He dies for us. He redeems us. He draws us out of the miry clay, as I've said before. And he does it in righteousness and peace. They've met each other. But how does this happen? How are all the idolatrous nations and peoples of the earth reconciled to God and brought into a marriage covenant with him? How is this blessedness brought about? The answer is the new covenant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, 31-35, prophesying about the new covenant, says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and inscribe it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each man teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. This is the new covenant that God makes with the elect remnant of Israel 
the elect Jews and the elect Gentiles of all nations. This is the new covenant of Jesus Christ that he brings to this earth in his life, death, and resurrection. We see this. John declares, as Jesus says in John 12, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That is what Jesus says when he comes. He says, I will, lift my, I will be lifted up, and all nations, all these peoples will be drawn unto me, all the adulterous, lewd nations of the earth that have been far from me, I will draw them all unto me. And a glorious covenant. John 3, 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. He draws, all, he draws sinners unto himself and says, Believe this day, believe on me. I have come and I have died. My blood satisfies for your unrighteousness and your adultery and your sins against the living God. Isaiah says, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. It is a beckoning call to look to Jesus Christ. Look unto Him, have your sins forgiven. Be reconciled to the God of living waters. Be reconciled to the fountain of living waters this day. Look unto Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. He has died and His blood will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He initiates reconciliation with you. He comes and He comes and He wants to initiate and become in relation with you in a marriage covenant, as it were, that will never, ever fail. This is the spousal love of Jesus Christ for his bride. As the hymn goes, Lift high the cross, the love of Christ proclaim. Let all the world adore his sacred name. O Lord, once lifted on the glorious tree, as thou hast promised, draw the world unto thee. This is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, our guilt put upon Him and His righteousness given to us as we repent, as we turn, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, as He is raised up from the earth and crucified and dies and is buried and is raised again. This is Jesus Christ, the faithful husband, who comes and saves His bride from all wickedness and satanic evil. This is Jesus Christ who enters into this world as a, as a man, truly God and truly man, and reconciles sinners to himself because he loved us before the foundation of the world, even though we were adulterous and idolatrous and there was nothing lovable in us. This is sometimes called the disinterested love of God. It doesn't mean that God is not interested in us. It means that there's nothing in us that God would find lovely but it is because God is love, he says, I will love you. And he makes that covenant with us. There's nothing we can give to him. He is just simply loving and good and he sets his love upon us. He enters into that covenant forever. He's the one that is faithful. He will never leave us. He will never divorce us. It is us who are unfaithful and unlovable, but yet he loves us. Isaiah says, A bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isle shall wait for his law. And we as the Gentiles, the isles, the nations far out, we have waited and we have heard the law of Jesus Christ. We have heard the gospel come to us. If you are in Christ today, we have waited and we have heard his law. And he is our faithful shepherd, our faithful husband. As Anthony Silvagio comments, Jesus is the faithful husband. Like Hosea, Jesus endured humiliation to buy his wife back. However, if you think about it, Jesus went even further than Hosea. Hosea was required to go into the marketplace and pay for Gomer, but Jesus 
when He came for us, paid a much higher price at a much greater personal cost. He gave Himself as the price. Greater yet, Jesus did something that Hosea could never do for His bride. Jesus bore the sins of His bride, and He gave her His righteousness. Paul, commenting, the apostle of Jesus Christ, says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have promised you to be I have promised you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That is who we are to be, a faithful as the church bride of Jesus Christ. He is our faithful husband. We as the bride, the corporate bride of Christ, we are his bride. Thirdly and finally, our response to God's faithful love. It should be to cry out, You are my God. Is she, you are my loving one, you are my faithful husband, you are my God. That is the response at the very end of Hosea 2 that God intends for us to do, is to cry out and say, you are my God, because he says, you are my people. He initiates that with us. So our response should be that. So application to all of this, first and foremost, if you are not a Christian today, if you have not trusted in this faithful husband, this faithful Savior, I urge you this morning to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never uh, divorce you, as it were. He will love you until the very end. If you come to Him, you will find a faithful Savior, a lover of your soul that you have never imagined. He will bring you safely into His heavenly kingdom and He will shout over you with shouts of joy. I urge you this morning to come to Jesus Christ and to believe in His name, to confess your sins, to believe that He died for you, that He was resurrected for you, that He ascended on high and He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. That is the call of the gospel. This is not for you today if you've not believed. You are not in marriage covenant with the Lord of hosts. He has not initiated this with you. If you are yet in your sins, you've not repented and believed. So I urge you to do that today. Come to the fountain of living waters, in whose presence is fullness of joy, and whose at right hand is pleasures forevermore. And for those of us who are in Christ, who are Christians, those of Christ... I can do nothing but just repeat the words of the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. According to Paul, that's your reasonable service. Full submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. Completely giving yourself over your whole life, everything you are, to Jesus Christ. That's your reasonable service. For all that we've just seen, all that God did, all that He did in spite of our sin and our folly, our shame, all that He did for all these thousands of years with His unfaithful people, He loves us and He redeemed us. And our reasonable service is to give everything we have to Him. Colossians 3.2 Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Think on Christ. Think on the things of God. Don't get caught up so much in the things of this world. I have to say, brethren, if all of this does not move you, then you should be concerned. You should ask yourself, why is it that these things have little effect on me? This great plan of redemption, this awesome work, these marvelous promises, this omnipotent power, this eternal love, how could it not cause an explosion of praise and devotion to Yahweh? 
How can you not say in response to all this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. That should be our response, and even more so than that. So what are some things we can do? What are some uh, practical applications we can take away to have a greater love for God, to have a greater devotion to Him, to give our whole lives to Him, as it were, to think of God in all of these terms? Well, first off, A, pray and be alone with God. But a little while back, our brother Randy preached a sermon on the importance of prayer. And he mentioned the quote from Blaise Pascal about the inability of men and women to be in a room by themselves for an extended period of time. This should not be. This should be a a daily practice, if not more so, that we get alone with the Lord. As as, as Moses comes before the Lord in the burning bush, the Lord says, Take your sandals from your feet, for the place in which you stand is holy ground. We should, as we were, take the sandals from our feet, the distraction of this world, the things we think about are happening tomorrow that happened last week. We should take those away from us. Get alone with the Lord and just pray to Him, rejoice in Him, and spend time with Him. Not in a quick, help me Lord, I need this help right now, but extended periods of time in prayer, being alone with the lover of your soul. I want to exhort you this day, this week, this month, to protect proactively begin to carve out time where you spend extended periods of time in prayer and contemplation on the scriptures so that you can rejoice and be even more full of joy when you hear truths like this. If you don't do this, it is ultimately your loss as these glorious truths will not move you and the joy and victory and peace that come from it will be foreign and shut out to you. Ten-minute quiet times are not going to cut it. The Lord beckons us to come away and be with Him. And we should do that. It is our reasonable service and He will give us the desires of our heart if we have right motives. B. Seek the help from other brothers and sisters to aid you on your walk of holiness and growth in the knowledge of the Lord. Zechariah 8.23 Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In a way that can be applicable today even now, when you have an older brother and sister, a more mature Christian in your life, you should go and grab them as it were and say, Let me go with you, for I know that God is with you. Teach me, teach me, how do I know the Lord more? That should be our response. Finding people, please help me. Help me to be more like Christ as you imitate Christ. Help me to imitate you. Grasp a hold of an older brother or sister in the Lord and ask for help in your walk in holiness. Final word. I speak to the husbands in the room. and I can do nothing more than just quote Paul's words in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, our faithful lover, we pray unto you in Jesus' name this morning. I thank you for these words, Lord, and help, help us to understand the things that were spoken. Let it sit in our hearts, O oh Lord. 
Help us to return to you, O Lord, our first love. Forgive us for our backsliding and our going our separate ways. Help us to return to you in love and adoration, O Lord. Forgive us for our unthankfulness, for your love and your kindness towards us, O Lord. Let us not settle for a lukewarm life, Lord God. Set us on fire this day, O Lord. Stir within us. Stoke the flames of love for you as you've loved us with an everlasting love. Please help all of us here today to love you with a greater love, to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that we are, Lord, and to love our brethren as you've loved us, and to love our neighbor as ourself, Lord. We can do nothing apart from you. We beg you in Jesus' name to come and do this work of sanctification in our hearts today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.